31. A generally acknowledged triple principle of self-government, self-support and self-defense. The principle is more fully applied in some parts of the empire than in others. There are some parts which have not yet completed their political evolution, some others in which the principle is temporarily or for special reasons in abeyance, others, again chiefly those of very small extent, which are held for purposes of the defense or advantage of the whole to which it is not applicable, but the principle is generally acknowledged as the structural basis upon which the constitution of the empire exists. In its relation to the empire the home section of the British Isles is distinguished from the others as the place of origin of the British race and the residence of the crown. The history and constitutional development of this portion of the empire will be found fully treated under separate headings. See England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, United Kingdom, English history, India, Africa, Australia, Canada, and see. It is enough to say that for purposes of administration the Indian Empire is divided into nine great provinces and four minor commissionerships. The nine great provinces are presided over by two governors Bombay and Madras. Five Lut. Governors Bengal, Eastern Bengal and Assam. United Provinces Agra and Oud. The Punjab and Burma. A chief commissioner the central provinces and an agent to the Governor General the NW Frontier Province. The four minor commissionerships are presided over each by a chief commissioner. Above these the supreme executive authority in India is vested in the Viceroy in Council. The Council consists of six ordinary members besides the existing Commander-in-Chief. For legislative purposes the Governor-General's Council is increased by the addition of 15 members nominated by the Crown, and has power under certain restrictions to make laws for British India, for British subjects in the native states and for native Indian subjects of the crown in any part of the world. The administration of the Indian Empire in England is carried on by a Secretary of State for India assisted by a council of not less than ten members. The expenditure of the revenues is under the control of the Secretary in Council. The colonial empire comprises over fifty distinct governments. It is divided into colonies of three classes and dependencies. These, again, are in some instances associated for administrative purposes in federated groups. The three classes of colonies are crown colonies, colonies possessing representative institutions but not responsible government, and colonies possessing representative institutions and responsible government. In crown colonies the crown has entire control of legislation, and the public officers are under the control of the home government. In representative colonies the crown has only a veto on legislation, but the home government retains control of the public officers. In responsible colonies the Crown retains a veto upon legislation, but the home government has no control of any public officer except the governor. In Crown colonies with the exception of Gibraltar and St. Helena, where laws may be made by the governor alone laws are made by the governor with the concurrence of a council nominated by the Crown. In some Crown colonies, chiefly those acquired by conquest or session, the authority of this council rests wholly on the Crown, in others, chiefly those acquired by settlement. The Council is created by the Crown under the authority of local or imperial laws. The Crown Council of Ceylon may be cited as an example of the first kind, and the Crown Council of Jamaica of the second, in colonies possessing representative institutions without responsible government. The Crown cannot generally legislate by order in Council, and laws are made by the Governor with the concurrence of the legislative body or bodies. One at least of these bodies in cases where a second chamber exists possessing a preponderance of elected representatives. The Bahamas, Barbados, and Bermuda have two legislative bodies one elected and one nominated by the Crown, Malta and the Leeward Islands have but one. 
which is partly elected and partly nominated, under responsible government legislation is carried on by parliamentary means exactly as at home, with a cabinet responsible to parliament, the crown reserving only a right of veto, which is exercised at the discretion of the governor in the case of certain bills, the executive councils in those colonies, designated as at home by parliamentary choice, are appointed by the governor alone, and the other public officers only nominally by the governor on the advice of his executive council. Colonial governors are classed as governors general, governors, lieut, governors, administrators, high commissioners, and commissioners, according to the status of the colony and dependency, or group of colonies and dependencies, over which they preside. Their powers vary according to the position which they occupy. In all cases they represent the crown. As a consequence of this organization the finance of crown colonies is under the direct control of the imperial government, the finance of representative colonies, though not directly controlled, is usually influenced in important departures by the opinion of the imperial government. In responsible colonies the finance is entirely under local control, and the imperial government is dissociated from either moral or material responsibility for colonial debts. In federated groups of colonies and dependencies matters which are of common interest to a given number of separate governments are by mutual consent of the federating communities adjudged to the authority of a common government, which, in the case of self-governing colonies, is voluntarily created for the purpose. The associated states form under the federal government one federal body, but the parts retain control of local matters, and exercise all their original rights of government in regard to these. The two great self-governing groups of federated colonies within the Empire are the Dominion of Canada and the Commonwealth of Australia. In South Africa unification was preferred to federation. The then self-governing colonies being united in 1910 into a one state the Union of South Africa, India, of which the associated provinces are under the control of the central government, may be given as an example of the practical federation of dependencies. Examples V.04P.0611 of Federated Crown Colonies and Lesser Dependencies are to be found in the Leeward Island Group of the West Indies and the Federated Malay States. This rough system of self-government for the Empire has been evolved not without some strain and friction, by the recognition through the vicissitudes of 300 years of the value of independent initiative in the development of young countries. Queen Elizabeth's first patent to Sir Walter Raleigh permitted British subjects to accompany him to America with guarantee of a continuance of the enjoyment of all the rights which her subjects enjoyed at home. This guarantee may presumably have been intended at the time only to assure the intending settlers that they should lose no rights of British citizenship at home by taking up their residence in America, its mutual interpretation in a wider sense, serving at once to establish in the colony rights of citizenship equivalent to those enjoyed in England, and to preserve for the colonists the status of British subject at home and abroad has formed in application to all succeeding systems of British colonization the unconscious charter of union of the empire. The first American colonies were settled under royal grants, each with its own constitution. The immense distance in time which in those days separated America from Great Britain secured them from interference by the home authorities. They paid their own most moderate governing expenses, and they contributed largely to their own defense. From the middle of the 17th century their trade was not free. But this was the only restriction from which they suffered. The Great War with France in the middle of the 18th century temporarily destroyed this system. That war, which resulted in the conquest of Canada and the delivery of the North American colonies from French antagonism, cost the Imperial Exchequer L90.000.000, 
the attempt to avert the repetition of such expenditure by the assertion of the right to tax the colonies through the British Parliament led to the one great rupture which has marked the history of the empire. It has to be noted that at home during the latter half of the 17th century and the earlier part of the 18th century parliamentary power had to a great extent taken the place of the divine right of kings, but parliamentary power meant the power of the English people and taxpayers. The struggle which developed itself between the American colonies and the British Parliament was in fact a struggle on the part of the people and taxpayers of one portion of the empire to resist the domination of the people and taxpayers of another portion. In this light it may be accepted as having historically established the fundamental axiom of the constitution of the empire, that the crown is the supreme head from which the parts take equal dependence. The crown requiring advice in the ordinary and constitutional manner receives it in matters of colonial administration from the secretaries of state for the colonies and for India. After the great rupture separate provision in the home government for the administration of colonial affairs was at first judged to be unnecessary, and the Council of Trade and Plantations, which up to that date had supplied the place now taken by the two offices of the colonies and India, was suppressed in 1782. There was a reaction from the liberal system of colonial self-government, and an attempt was made to govern the colonies simply as dependencies. In 1791, not long after the extension of the range of parliamentary authority in another portion of the empire, by the creation in 1784 of the Board of Control for India, Pitt made the step forward of granting to Canada representative institutions, of which the home government kept the responsible control. Similar institutions were also given at a later period to Australia and South Africa, but the long peace of the early part of the 19th century was marked by great colonial developments. Australia, Canada and South Africa became important communities. Representative institutions controlled by the home government were insufficient, and they reasserted the claim for liberty to manage their own affairs. Fully responsible government was granted to Canada in 1840, and gradually extended to the other colonies. In 1854 a separate Secretary of State for the Colonies was appointed at home, and the Colonial Office was established on its present footing. In India, as in the Colonies, there came with the growing needs of Empire a recognition of the true relations of the parts to each other and of the whole to the Crown. In 1858, on the complete transference of the territories of the East India Company to the Crown, the Board of Control was abolished, and the India Council under the presidency of a Secretary of State for India, was created. It was especially provided that the members of the Council may not sit in Parliament. Thus, although it has not been found practicable in the working of the British Constitution to carry out the full theory of the direct and exclusive dependence of colonial possessions on the Crown, the theory is recognized as far as possible. It is understood that the principal sections of the Empire enjoy equal rights under the Crown, and that none is subordinate to another. The intervention of the Imperial Parliament in colonial affairs is only admitted theoretically in so far as the support of Parliament is required by the constitutional advisers of the Crown. To bring the practice of the Empire into complete harmony with the theory it would be necessary to constitute, for the purpose of advising the Crown on Imperial affairs, a council in which all important parts of the Empire should be represented, the gradual recognition of the constitutional theory of the British Empire and the assumption by the principal colonies of full self-governing responsibilities, has cleared the way for a movement in favor of a further development which should bring the supreme headship of the empire more into accord with modern ideas. It was during the period of domination of the Manchester School, of which the most effective influence in public affairs was exerted for about 30 years, 
extending from 1845 to 1875, that the fullest development of colonial self-government was attained, the view being generally accepted at that time that self-governing institutions were to be regarded as the preliminary to inevitable separation, a general inclination to a withdraw from the acceptance of imperial responsibilities throughout the world gave to foreign nations at the same time an opportunity by which they were not slow to profit and contributed to the force of a reaction of which the part played by Great Britain in the scramble for Africa marked the culmination. Under the increasing pressure of foreign enterprise, the value of a federation of the empire for purposes of common interest began to be discussed. Imperial federation was openly spoken of in New Zealand as early as 1852. A similar suggestion was officially put forward by the General Association of the Australian Colonies in London in 1857, the Royal Colonial Institution of which the motto, United Empire, illustrates its aims, was founded in 1868, first among leading British statesmen to repudiate the old interpretation of colonial self-government as a preliminary to separation, Lord Beaconsfield, in 1872, spoke of the constitutions accorded to the colonies as, part of a great policy of imperial consolidation, in 1875 W.E. Forster, afterwards a member of the Liberal government, made a speech in which he advocated imperial federation as a means by which it might become practicable to replace dependence by association. The foundation of the Imperial Federation League in 1884, with Forster for its first president, shortly to be succeeded by Lord Rosebery marked a distinct step forward. The colonial conferences of 1887 and subsequent years the title being changed to Imperial Conference in 1907 in which colonial opinion was sought and accepted in respect of important questions of imperial organization and defense, and the enthusiastic loyalty displayed by the colonies towards the crown on the occasion of the jubilee manifestations of Queen Victoria's reign, were further indications of progress in the same direction. Coincidentally with this development, the achievements of Sir George Goldie and Cecil Rhodes, who, the one in West Africa and the other in South Africa, added between them to the empire in a space of less than 20 years a dominion of greater extent than the whole of British V.04P.061 to India, followed by the action of a host of distinguished disciples in other parts of the world, effectually stemmed the movement initiated by Cobden and Bright, a tendency which had seemed temporarily to point towards a complacent dissolution of the empire was arrested, and the closing years of the 19th century were marked by a growing disposition to appreciate the value and importance of the unique position which the British Empire has created for itself in the world. No stronger demonstration of the reality of imperial union could be needed than that which was afforded by the support given to the imperial forces by the colonies and India in the South African War. It remained only to be seen by what process of evolution the further consolidation of the empire would find expression in the machinery of government. A step in this direction was taken in 1907, when at the Colonial Conference held in London that year it was decided to form a permanent secretariat to deal with the common interests of the self-governing colonies and the mother country. It was further decided that conferences, to be called in future imperial conferences, between the home government and the governments of the self-governing dominions, should be held every four years, and that the Prime Minister of Great Britain should be ex officio president of the conference. No executive power was, however, conferred upon the conference. The movement in favor of tariff reform initiated by Mr. Chamberlain QB in 1903 with the double object of giving a preference to colonial goods and of protecting imperial trade by the imposition in certain cases of retaliative duties on foreign goods, was a natural evolution of the imperialist idea. 
and of the fact that by this time the trade statistics of the United Kingdom had proved that trade with the colonies was forming an increasingly large proportion of the whole. In spite of the defeat of the Unionist Party in England in 1906, and the accession to power of a liberal government opposed to anything which appeared to be inconsistent with free trade, the movement for colonial preference, based on tariff reform, continued to make headway in the United Kingdom, and was definitely adopted by the Unionist Party, and at the Imperial Conference of 1907 it was advocated by all the colonial premiers, who could point to the progress made in their own states towards giving a tariff preference to British goods and to those of one another. The question of self-government is closely associated with the question of self-support. Plenty of good land and the liberty to manage their own affairs were the causes assigned by Adam Smith for the marked prosperity of the British colonies towards the end of the 18th century. The same causes are still observed to produce the same effects, and it may be one doubt that, since the date of the latest of Adam Smith's writings, upwards of 6.000.000 square meters of virgin soil, rich with possibilities of agricultural, pastoral and mineral wealth, have been added to the empire. In the same period the white population has grown from about area code 12000000 to area code 53000000, and the developments of agricultural and industrial machinery have multiplied, almost beyond computation, the powers of productive labor. It is scarcely possible within this article to deal with so widely varied a subject as that of the productions and industry of the empire. For the purposes of a general statement, it is interesting to observe that concurrently with the acquisition of the vast continental areas during the 19th century, the progress of industrial science and application to means of transport and communication brought about a revolution of the most radical character in the accepted laws of economic development. Railways did away with the old law that the spread of civilization is necessarily governed by facilities for water carriage and is consequently confined to river valleys and seashores. Steam and electricity opened to industry the interior of continents previously regarded as unapproachable. The resources of these vast inland spaces which have lain untouched since history began became available to individual enterprise, and over a great portion of the Earth's surface were brought within the possessions of the British Empire. The production of raw material within the empire increased at a rate which can only be appreciated by a careful study of figures, and by a comparison of the total of these figures with the total figures of the world. The tropical and temperate possessions of the empire include every field of production which can be required for the use of man. There is no main staple of human food which is not grown, there is no material of textile industry which is not produced. The British Empire gives occupation to more than one-third of the persons employed in mining and quarrying in the world. It may be interesting, as an indication of the relative position in this respect of the British Empire to the world, to state that at present it produces one-third of the coal supply of the world, one-sixth of the wheat supply, and very nearly two-thirds of the gold supply. But while these figures may be taken as in themselves satisfactory, it is far more important to remember that as yet the potential resources of the new lands open to enterprise have been barely conceived, and their wealth has been little more than scratched. Population as yet has been only very sparsely sprinkled over the surface of many of the areas most suitable for white settlement. In the wheat lands of Canada, the pastoral country of Australasia, and the mineral fields of South Africa and Western Canada alone, the undeveloped resources are such as to ensure employment to the labor and satisfaction to the needs of at least as many millions as they now contain thousands of the British race. 
in respect of this promise of the future the position of the British Empire is unique. It is not too much to say that trade has been at once the most active cause of expansion and the most potent bond of union in the development of the empire. Trade with the tropical and settlement in the temperate regions of the world formed the basis upon which the foundations of the empire were laid. Trading companies founded most of the American and West Indian colonies, a trading company won India, a trading company colonized the northwestern districts of Canada, commercial wars during the greater part of the 18th century established the British command of the sea, which rendered the settlement of Australasia possible. The same wars gave Great Britain South Africa, and chartered companies in the 19th century carried the British flag into the interior of the African continent from south and east and west. Trading companies developed Borneo and Fiji. The bonds of prosperous trade have kept the Australasian colonies within the empire. The protection of colonial commerce by the Imperial Navy is one of the strongest of material links which connect the crown with the outlying possessions of the empire. The trade of the empire, like the other developments of imperial public life, has been profoundly influenced by the variety of local conditions under which it has flourished. In the early settlement of the North American colonies their trade was left practically free, but by the famous Navigation Act of 1660 the importation and exportation of goods from British colonies were restricted to British ships, of which the master and three-fourths of the mariners were English. This act, of which the intention was to encourage British shipping and to keep the monopoly of British colonial trade for the benefit of British merchants was followed by many others of a similar nature up to the time of the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846 and the introduction of free trade into Great Britain. The Navigation Acts were repealed in 1849. Thus for very nearly 200 years British trade was subject to restrictions, of which the avowed intention was to curtail the commercial intercourse of the empire with the world. During this period the commercial or mercantile system, of which the fallacies were exposed by the economists of the latter half of the 18th century, continued to govern the principles of British trade. Under the system monopolies were common, and among them few were more important than that of the East India Company. In 1813 the trade of India was, however, thrown open to competition, and in 1846, after the introduction of free trade at home, the principal British colonies which had not yet at that date received the grant of responsible government were specially empowered to abolish differential duties upon foreign trade. A first result of the commercial emancipation of the V.04P.0613 colonies was the not altogether unnatural rise in the manufacturing centers of the political school known as the Manchester School, which was disposed to question the value to Great Britain of the retention of colonies which were no longer bound to give her the monopoly of their commercial markets. An equally natural desire on the part of the larger colonies to profit by the opportunity which was open to them of establishing local manufacturers of their own combined with the convenience in new countries of using the customs as an instrument of taxation, led to something like a reciprocal feeling of resentment, and there followed a period during which the policy of Great Britain was to show no consideration for colonial trade, and the policy of the principal colonies was to impose heavy duties upon British trade, by a gradual process of better understanding, largely helped by the development of means of communication, the antagonistic extreme was abandoned and a tendency towards a system of preferential duties within the empire displayed itself. At the Colonial Conference held in London in 1887 a proposal was formally submitted by the South African delegate for the establishment within the empire of a preferential system, imposing a duty of two upon all foreign goods, the proceeds to be directed to the maintenance of the Imperial Navy, 
To this end it was requested that certain treaties with foreign nations which imposed restrictions on the trade of various parts of the empire with each other should be denounced. Some years later, a strong feeling having been manifested in England against any foreign engagement standing in the way of new domestic trade arrangements between a colony and the mother country, the German and Belgian treaties in question were denounced 1897. Meanwhile, Simultaneously with the movement in favor of reciprocal fiscal advantages to be granted within the empire by the many local governments to each other, there was a growth of the perception that an increase of the foreign trade of Great Britain, carried on chiefly in manufactured goods, was accompanied by a corresponding enlargement of the home markets for colonial raw material, and consequently that injury to the foreign trade of Great Britain, while as yet it so largely outweighed the trade between the United Kingdom and the colonies must necessarily react upon the colonies. This view was definitely expressed at the Colonial Conference at Ottawa in 1894, and was one of the factors which led to the relinquishment of the demand that in return for colonial concessions there should be an imposition on the part of Great Britain of a differential duty upon foreign goods. Canada was the first important British colony to give substantial expression to the new imperial sentiment in commercial matters by the introduction in 1897 of an imperial tariff granting without any reciprocal advantage a deduction of 25 upon customs duties imposed upon British goods. The same advantage was offered to all British colonies trading with her upon equal terms. In later years the South African states, Australia and New Zealand also granted preferential treatment to British goods. Meanwhile in Great Britain the system of free imports, regarded as free trade, though only one-sided free trade, had become the established policy customs duties being only imposed for purposes of revenue on a few selected articles, and about half the national income was derived from customs and excise. In most of the colonies customs form of necessity one of the important sources of revenue. It island however, worthy of remark that in the self-governing colonies, even those which are avowedly protectionist, a smaller proportion of the public revenue was derived from customs and excise than was derived from these sources in the United Kingdom. The proportion in Australasia before Federation was about one quarter. In Canada it is more difficult to estimate it, as customs and excise form the principal provision made for federal finance, and note must therefore be taken of the separate sources of revenue in the provinces. With these reservations it will still be seen that customs, or, in other words, a tax upon the movements of trade, forms one of the chief sources of imperial revenue. The development of steam shipping and electricity gave to the movements of trade a stimulus no less remarkable than that given by the introduction of railroads and industrial machinery to production and manufactures, whereas at the beginning of the 19th century the journey to Australia occupied eight months, and business communications between Sydney and London could not receive answers within the year. At the beginning of the 20th century the journey could be accomplished in 31 days and telegraphic dispatches enabled the most important business to be transacted within 24 hours. For one cargo carried in the year at the beginning of the 19th century at least six could now be carried by the same ship, and from the point of view of trade the difference of a venture which realizes its profits in two months, as compared with one which occupied a whole year, does not need to be insisted on. The increased rapidity of the voyage and the power of daily communication by telegraph with the most distant markets had introduced a wholly new element into the national trade of the empire, and commercial intercourse between the southern and the northern hemispheres has received a development from the natural alternation of the seasons, of which until quite recent years the value was not even conceived. Fruit, eggs, butter, meat, 
poultry and other perishable commodities pass in daily increasing quantities between the northern and the southern hemispheres with an alternate flow which contributes to a raise in no inconsiderable degree the volume of profitable trade. Thus the butter season of Australasia is from October to March, while the butter season of Ireland and Northern Europe is from March to October. In three years after the introduction of ice chambers into the steamers of the great shipping lines, Victoria and New South Wales built up a yearly butter trade of L1.000.000 with Great Britain without seriously affecting the Irish and Danish markets whence the summer supply is drawn. These facilities, combined with the enormous additions made to the public stock of land and labor, contributed to raise the volume of trade of the empire from a total of less than L100.000.000 in the year 1800 to a total of nearly L1.500.000.000 in 1900. The declared volume of British exports to all parts of the world in 1800 was L38.120.120. And the value of British imports from all parts of the world was L30.570.605, total, L68.690.725. As in those days the colonies were not allowed to trade with any other country this must be taken as representing imperial trade. The exact figures of the trade of India, the colonies, and the United Kingdom for 1900 were, imports, L809.178.209. Exports, L657.899.363, total, L1.467.077.572, a question of sovereign importance to the continued existence of the empire is the question of defense, a country of which the main thoroughfares are the oceans of the world demands in the first instance a strong navy. It has of late years been accepted as a fundamental axiom of defense that the British Navy should exceed in strength any reasonable combination of foreign navies which could be brought against it. The accepted formula being the two power S.